would like to submit a story, topic, or have any other inquiries, please email submit at skibanewsnation.com. Also, you can email Jeremiah Skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com. Also, email Jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com. If you want to write us a letter, send us something, help support us, or just say hi, please send your letter to Jeremiah Skiba, P.O. Box 560-271, The Colony, Texas 75056. If you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, subscribe, and click that notification bell so you never miss an episode of Skiba News Nation. If you want to help support us, please consider becoming a Patreon where you will get exclusive content, shoutouts, and much more. And you can also support our channel by getting yourself some new Skiba News Nation merch. Thank you for coming on this journey with us as we continue to stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Skiba News Nation. Also, you can listen to Skiba News Nation podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. I want to know what the truth is. And I hope that people, my son, anybody, if my name comes up, whether you like me, whether you agree with me or not, at least you can respect the fact that he's on a quest for truth. He's on a quest for truth. Welcome to Skiba News Nation bringing you unfiltered views, news, interviews, discussions, and more. And now, here's your host, Jeremiah Skiba, award-winning musician and son of Rob Skiba. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, welcome to episode 59 of Skiba News Nation, your weekly source of the latest news, controversial topics, conspiracies, forgotten history, and much more. I'm your host, Jeremiah Skiba, and today we're going to be talking about... Shocking UK <laughs> status info. Maui police chief has dark connection no one's talking about, and what the media won't tell you about the Maui fires. A Georgia court post-Trump RICO charges, then denies corruption. Gee, what a coincidence regarding the Trump indictments. Federal agencies arming themselves, and 1.3 million ton nuclear waste disaster. On all new Opus Corner, and for history, we'll be taking a deep dive into the Charlie Manson and MK Ultra connection, and the Pinocchio and Epstein connection, memes and much more, so subscribe and stay tuned. Now as always, I'd like to introduce my great and insightful co-host, Mr. Jake Grant. Hey Jeremiah, hey everybody, uh, we got some great news for us this week. Now I know we got a great show today, so let's dive right in. Hey everybody, I got some great news for us this week. We have some really pressing current events happening. We have some interesting uh, NPR style news headlines that just uh, saturate the world in today's news cycle. Uh, the other day, Sierra and I were driving down the road and in one hour we had the same news story uh, talked about like 10 times. Uh, it's, it's, it's just crazy how the world is. Uh, we're going to be 
talking about some uh, some really interesting things with the Maui fire that happened recently, what the media won't tell you. And we're also going to be looking at how federal agencies are starting to arm themselves in an interesting fashion. And million tons of nuclear waste was just poured into some water someplace. So we're going to share some videos on that. Uh, to kick us off, check out this. Remember, it's weird watching people who direct their hate towards people telling them the truth and not those who lied to them. And some of these initial stories that we're going to talk about really bring that to mind, such as this. Breaking news, the UK government has published official figures on deaths following COVID revealing one in every 482 people in England died within one month of one in every 246 died within 60 days of nation and one in every 73 were dead by may 2022 so it's an interesting post from leading report there uh i'm sure we need to double check those numbers but i'm not surprised if this is accurate a lot of the people that do this who get angry at the ones sharing truth, sharing an alternative perspective to what the mainstream wants to indoctrinate you into believing, right? Uh, we need to come to this conclusion, dear God, right? Fix me when I'm the problem and protect me when I'm not. Well, oftentimes when we're recruited by the beast system to go with the crowd, to condemn people who speak truth and don't fit in with the norm agenda, right? Well, we become the problem. And we have to be aware of the ways that we're, the, the herd is being funneled towards certain thought patterns. Now, here's an interesting uh, picture here. If you homeschool your kids, then they won't fit in with society. And, you know, the respectable gentleman goes, correct. That's the whole point. They won't fit in with society. That brings to mind what we're seeing currently in school uh, a Fox News post shared that a feminist medical school professor says trans kids identifying as minotaurs are part of gender revolution. Oh, great. Well, just like that meme said, you know, if you homeschool your kids, they won't fit in with the world because this is what the world wants them to fit in with. Uh, but what was fascinating with this is it was a California hospital executive and professor claimed they can identify as mythological inspired creatures. Sure, no problem. But what's interesting here is that this self-identified feminist who supports the gender revolution is the director of mental health and the chief psychologist at UCSF. Uh, so this is uh, the people who sit in these high offices pushing gender ideology on young people and encouraging uh, pretty much psychosis, right? Encouraging uh, psychological disorders. Here's a interesting uh, taxpayer-funded demon summoning session happening at the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Uh, the Walker Arts Center holds a playful demon summoning session for families. Very interesting. Uh, <laughs> the meme under it said, Do you want to get possessed by demons? Because that's how you get possessed by demons. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, we're going to now get into the topic of the Maui fires uh, and uh, terrible event, uh, biggest loss of life in terms of a United States forest fire uh, event, wildfire event. 
And what's interesting here that I wanted to share before we show two videos is the victims of the Maui fires are reportedly being contacted by investors and realtors attempting to buy their land in Hawaii amid the disaster. Uh, everybody trying to jump on a buck, right? Uh, confirmed 96 fatalities. Uh, but what this reminds me of is a systematic purchasing of cheap land, right? People lose everything, and then these big corporate types, these big investors come in, buy everything up, and then uh, they turn it into uh, something that it was never going to be unless this disaster had happened in the first place. And perhaps it's people capitalizing on a bad situation, or perhaps there's something more nefarious to it. We don't know how these fires started now. Uh, of course, it's a tragic situation that happened there, but we're going to watch some of these videos next that really break down. There's more than meets the eye with this story at Maui. This first video I'm going to share is what the media won't tell you about the Maui fires. On August 8th, 2023, the historic town of Lahaina on the island of Maui a popular tourist spot was destroyed by a fire that seemingly came out of nowhere. As of Monday morning, August 14th, the death toll sits at 96. An estimated 2,200 acres have been burned. Over 2,000 buildings have been reduced to ash, and of those buildings, 86% of them were residential homes. The investigation is ongoing, loved ones are still missing, but alongside the rubble and ruin, questions remain. In this video, my goal is to give a voice to Maui residents in their eyewitness accounts, highlight key facts that have been completely buried, provide relevant historical context, and ultimately, share with you what the media won't tell you about the Maui fires. Not so long ago, the band of islands we call Hawaii was a sovereign state known as the Kingdom of Hawaii. Because of its key location in the Pacific Ocean and its fertile ground, Hawaii was historically a prized place for trade. However, the kingdom fell when the United States gobbled it up under the whole notion of manifest destiny. With a little help from the U.S. government, a group of American and European businessmen overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy. You see, the Hawaiian Islands offered a key position for a U.S. military base and would aid in the development of the U.S. as a global superpower. And thus, the final queen of the Kingdom of Hawaii was deposed in 1893. From then on, Hawaii played a key role on the world stage. Just think about it, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which occurred on December 7, 1941, had a significant effect on the United States and was crucial in influencing the government's decision to enter World War II. It was also key in rallying the emotional support for war from U.S. troops and civilians alike. Nearly a century later, there is open discourse on the idea that President Roosevelt either let it happen, as in he had foreknowledge of Pearl Harbor and did nothing, or he caused it to happen. You know, the same conversation we have about George W. Bush. Alas, Americans would not and could not give their consent to war without a reason. They just needed to be given one. Problem, reaction, solution. At 11 a.m. on August 4th, 2023, it was reported by satellites that a handful of small fires had started on Maui around the same time. 
No cause has officially been given, and this is a key detail that I just want to emphasize. It wasn't just one fire that was started, but several at once. On Tuesday morning, August 8th, Lahaina, once the Kingdom of Hawaii's capital city, began to witness wildfires. Lahaina is a small town located in Maui, and in the Hawaiian language, Lahaina means cruel or merciless sun. Survivors of the fire reported that there were no sirens or warnings when the fire started, only strong winds that brought distant fire into the residential areas within minutes. According to emergency officials, Maui's warning sirens didn't sound as devastating wildfires approached as they should have. On the island of Maui, there are 80 outdoor sirens to alert residents of tsunamis and other natural disasters. But those sirens were totally silent as people burned to death. According to investigators, quote, nobody at the state and nobody at the county attempted to activate those sirens based on our records, end quote. Emergency alert texts were reportedly sent out, but due to the rate at which these fires spread, the towers were down, the power lines were down, and people weren't receiving those alerts on their phones or TVs, all of which contributed to the chaos. The fires were so intense and spread so rapidly that the U.S. Coast Guard saved over 50 individuals after some people fled the fire by jumping into the Pacific Ocean. The fires were still active the following day, and locals reported being barred off from bringing supplies to the affected areas to, to even search for their loved ones and render aid. And this is another weird, strange detail. The incident commander of the 2017 Las Vegas country music mass shooting, one of the biggest cover-ups in U.S. history, just happens to be Maui's police chief, John Pelletier, who said the following about the fires. We find these, you know, our family and our friends. The remains we're finding is through a fire that melted metal. We know we've got to go quick but we got to do it right. So when we pick up the remains and they fall apart, and so when you have 200 people running through the scene yesterday, and some of you, that's what you're stepping on. I don't know how much more you want me to describe it. Hawaii Governor Josh Green said the town looked like a bomb had been dropped, and he wasted no time blaming the fires on climate change. Of course, mainstream media ran with this narrative and has blamed humans for living and vacationing in Maui for the wildfires. Which brings us into a whole other conversation entirely. Who is actually responsible for the wildfires in Maui? According to some locals, bad government and poor land management is to blame. As dry, non-native, invasive grasses weren't properly cleared in previous years, which served as perfect tender under the right conditions, strong winds, and drought. And I want you to remember what we talked about earlier. Satellites picked up all these fires across the island igniting around the same time, same day, the morning of August 4th. It wasn't just one fire. It was multiple fires across Maui. And I'm not trying to interject my opinion when I'm just giving you the facts, but that in particular sticks out to me, and I find it weird. So, of course, there's already a wrongful death lawsuit brewing and, quote, legal teams from Watskara, Singleton, Schreiber, and France law group firms have all independently reached the conclusion that Hawaiian Electric's compromised infrastructure served as the ignition source for the inferno, end quote. 
And I just want to point out that according to the World Economic Forum in an article that they published in 2018, Hawaii plans to be the first U.S. state to run entirely on clean energy, with clean energy being defined as solar, wind, biomass, and geothermal green power. And after someone sent me that article, I was reading up on how our current power grid will stand up to the clean energy goals of the future. And basically, the corporations are lobbying for our entire power grid to be replaced. So if you fault Hawaiian Electric, sue them for all their worth, put them out of business, who replaces them? Will it be whoever is going to bring forth the goals of Agenda 2030 in the World Economic Forum? So attorneys are blaming the electric company, probably because the electric company has the deepest pocket. The governor is blaming climate change, and other people are blaming land mismanagement, while others are whispering about directed energy weapons. And I know I never talk about directed energy weapons, and you all know this, not because I deny their existence, but it's like conspiracy quicksand over here. It's too easy for people to dismiss because fires can be attributed to many things. But there's just this glaring coincidence one cannot overlook for this particular fire. AFRL's Directed Energy Directorate is the Department of the Air Force Center of Expertise for Directed Energy and Optical Technologies. They specialize in directed energy weapons that harness the power of the electromagnetic spectrum to enable airmen to effectively and affordably strike critical targets, all at the speed of light. According to their website, the AFRL Directed Energy Directoriate operates two major telescope sites that are used to advance SSA technologies. One of these sites is located on the Kirkland Air Force Base in New Mexico, and the other site is located on... You'll never guess it. The other site is located on Maui. The Maui site is called the Air Force Maui Optical and Supercomputing Site. So let's go down the list. A little logical little assessment here. Do direct energy weapons exist that can cause wildfires? According to U.S. government websites, yes. Does the U.S. government have the ability to use those resources? According to the U.S. government website, yes. If the U.S. government has this tool, does it mean other countries have this tool? And could they use it on the U.S.? Theoretically, yes. Would wildfires sparked by direct energy weapons serve their Hegelian dialectic of problem-reaction-solution, you know, policy changes and narrative shifts and sustainable development goals and whatnot. Sure. Can we prove that they used a directed energy weapon and that it was the U.S. government who used it? Me personally, I'm going to say not at this moment. No, we can't prove it. But what I will say is that if I were on the ground in Maui and I had a basic understanding of local politics and procedures— and I decided to dig deeper on this story, I would probably want to know who fled the wildfires before anyone else, who from government or high society was evacuated before the traffic jams and all the chaos started. And I would also want to watch who benefits from the destruction. The average residential home in Maui is just at the median price of $1.2 million. Can insurance companies afford to rebuild thousands of homes in this area? Can families who didn't have homeowners insurance afford to rebuild their homes and businesses? With the rapid inflation we've experienced over the past couple years, the cost of building has increased substantially. What will insurance cover? Because I'm imagining a scenario where residents are left with land and no means to rebuild, nowhere to live in the interim, and yeah, 
that would make it hard to say no to offers on your property. You know, there, there have been reports of looting and civil unrest. I mean, I've, I saw, you know, a few kind of rough looking people when I was down here, but I mean, nothing happened, but it's, it, it, it might be a good idea to, to stay out of here for the time being. Um, and you can see over there, you know, there was multi-million dollar beachfront houses were lost. Uh, you know, I mean, I know every, every house on Maui nowadays is almost every house is going to be over a million bucks. But all of my neighbors and I are interested in what the, what the news actually is because we don't have access to the internet, not cellular, not cable internet. We don't have a TV. We, we do have the radio, but for whatever reason, the radio out here continues to just mainly play music. I've, I've heard very, very few broadcasts of news, and I don't know if that's just my timing of listening to it, but uh, there's, there's really been very little information. I live on Maui. The media is lying and or covering up the extent of the damage and the death count. I personally know people that are telling me that death and destruction is way worse than we're being told. I am witnessing the cover-up by the media firsthand. So my final question that the media would never ask is, are we witnessing a land grab at fire sale prices in the future? All right, and here's another video, an interesting take on the Maui police chief has some dark connections no one's talking about. These fires in Maui are post-apocalyptic kind of fires at this point. We're praying for these folks that have lost everything I literally can't imagine. And there's been a lot of explanations on how this fire started. We may never know the answer. But if y'all wonder why I'm not too trusting, I became that way when I was seven years old and my dad told me that 12 gauge don't kick, son. Go ahead and shoot it. Fire it off. So it's in my nature to ask questions, right? Maui has been one of the worst fires in American history, but here's where it takes a very, very weird turn. There's a police chief there in Maui. It's a guy named John Pelletier, and he's got a history with very, very tragic events. Do y'all know Pelletier was the same guy who was the incident commander during the Las Vegas massacre, the shootings. They killed right during the middle of the Jason Aldean concert back in 2018, where 59 people were killed and 527 people were injured. He was the incident commander in Las Vegas at that time. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of anything whatsoever, but his involvement in the Las Vegas uh, shooting incident and now the Maui wildfires definitely raises some eyebrows. That's all I'm saying. We're allowed to at least ask questions, right? If that doesn't freak you out enough, Chief Pelletier recently graduated from the FBI National Academy securing a certificate in criminal justice. President with him at his graduation was A.G. William Barr and current FBI Director Christopher Wray. Now, these people are both in Clinton's back pockets, y'all. All I'm saying is there's some tragic events that go on, and if I were Pelletier, I would use this as an opportunity to say, look, <laughs> knock, knock, knock at the podium, at the microphone. I know how it looks, I know how it sounds, but I'm gonna tell you the truth. This is an absolute opportunity because now that people have made the connection, it looks bad, man. 
And as long as we're ignoring the cocaine in the White House, as long as we're ignoring the dead body at Obama's house, as long as we're ignoring the male prostitute at Paul Pelosi's house, maybe we could focus, maybe just maybe, on why the hell disaster keeps following this man. I mean, I think it's a big opportunity to go into public and do what I said, you know, correct everybody, tell everybody what's going on. Things got even crazier yesterday as Maui burns to the ground and Biden is vacationing on the beach. He's asked for a comment on the Maui uh, wildfires and Biden says no comment. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you don't think this sounds shady? You don't think this sounds awful? By the way, the firefighters that were on duty, there was this guy named Kihai Ho. I'm probably going to mispronounce that. I apologize. But he was a firefighter on duty and he said when they opened the fire hydrants, there was no water. How about that? You want to explain that one away? I mean, I think this guy, Kihai Ho, God bless him, but he's going to need about 27 uh, bodyguards around the clock. I'll go ahead and just tell, just tell everybody right now, Kihai Ho did not kill himself. You see what I'm saying? This ain't some kind of conspiracy theory. It's just asking a question, y'all. Because, look, this is how we get stuff done in America. They used to call Noah a conspiracy theorist for a long, long time until the flood came and all the fact checkers drowned. God bless y'all. Alrighty, so very interesting take. You guys let us know what you think in the comments below. Uh, I know there's some talk about turning Maui into a smart island. Uh, and because of the destruction of this town, uh, it, it's really interesting that they now have the opportunity to build a super computerized, smart AI kind of advancements as they replace this area it was very interesting to me uh perhaps the significance that the oldest tree in hawaii that was there in the town did not burn down it was just covered in ash and apparently it survived the fire and if you see the destruction it's really surprising and uh the what that makes me think of that i'd like to bring up to our audience it reminds me of a interesting breakdown that uh a pastor named Jonathan Kahn shared uh, in some of his research on the events that happened in 9-11 and in New York City and uh, the association with trees and the prophetic future of a city or a, a nation uh, being associated with these particular uh, trees. And it, it is interesting to me how this tree survived and if there is some kind of uh, depth to uh, or, or a prophetic implication to the fact that this ancient tree survived. It is interesting. I, I just want to bring that up because if you're familiar with some of those discussions, how uh, there was a tree that was once in New York and it was replaced after 9-11 and that's heralds, you know, prophetic topics in the scripture. It, it's very interesting to me, the, the survival of this ancient tree. All right, so what we're going to share about next is... Gee, what a coincidence in the topic of NPR and many other news outlets constantly hammering home the topic of Trump's fourth indictment. Uh, we're going to share a funny video here. Ordinarily, when the ruling regime of a country arrests their political opponents on trumped-up charges, it shocks the country. But this is the fourth time that this has happened now to Donald Trump in the last few months, so we're all kind of used to it, and it Feels like an ordinary Tuesday in the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll debunk the bogus charges in just a moment. These stemming from Fulton County, Georgia, where the grand jury picked this person, you may recall, as the jury foreman. 
Did you personally want to hear from the former president? Well, I wanted to hear from the former president, but honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. Mm. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in, I just, I kind of thought that would be awesome. Okay, so that's just a meme by C3P Meme who does fantastic work. But this is the real jury foreman. You probably saw this clip when she first gave these ridiculous interviews. And this is who the grand jury chose to represent them. This was who they decided was the smartest one out of the whole group. This but is one, straight we out do of know, Of course, one of the biggest questions remaining for everyone happy that wasn't in that jury room with you weird is how many people is. are in trouble here. What can you tell us about how many people you recommended as a group to face indictments? Again, this is who the grand jury decided should represent them, should lead them. The only person having more fun than her is Hillary Clinton, who coincidentally, of course, was on MSNBC last night as news of the latest indictment broke. Is the former Democratic presidential nominee, U.S. <laughs> Senator from New York and Secretary of State. I should tell you, she has a new essay out in The Atlantic on the well-being of Americans and our democracy. It's called The Weaponization of Loneliness. That came out a week ago. Nobody goes on cable news to talk about a column that they wrote in some garbage leftist rag of a magazine a week ago. Of course, they booked her. They knew that the indictment was coming out yesterday. It was accidentally posted on the website before it was officially announced. And so everybody knew it was coming. So they booked Hillary Clinton to come on and celebrate. Madam Secretary, fancy meeting you. Oh, here. I so can't nice believe this. <laughs> yeah, this is not the circumstances in which I expected to be talking to you. Nor me, Rachel. It's always good to talk to you. But honestly, um, I didn't think that it would be under these circumstances. Yet another set of indictments. Yes, another indictment, which we'll look at in a moment. Here's District Attorney Fannie Willis, who filed it. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals with violations of Georgia law arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. A criminal conspiracy, they say. So they used the RICO statute, which was put in place back in the 1970s to literally take down the Italian mafia so that the higher-ups, the leaders of the families, could be indicted for charges that their underlings did because, of course, they're trying to portray Donald Trump as a mob boss. And here's some of the supposed evidence detailed in the indictment. On or about the 21st day of November 2020, Mark Meadows sent a text message to United States Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania and stated... Can you send me the phone number for the speaker and the leader of the Pennsylvania legislature? POTUS, the president of the United States, wants to chat with them. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. <laughs> On or about the third day of December 2020, Donald John Trump caused to be tweeted from the Twitter account at RealDonaldTrump, Georgia hearings now on OAN. Amazing. <laughs> This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, they say. Seriously, this is directly from the indictment. So Donald Trump telling people to tune in to OAN is part of the conspiracy. On or about the 8th day of December 2020, Michael A. Roman sent a text message to unindicted co-conspirator Individual 4, 
whose identity is known to the grand jury, stated, they can't even write this right, it should be stating, stating that he had spoken to Misty Hampton and asked unindicted co-conspirator Individual 4 to get Misty Hampton to attend the hearing before the Georgia House of Representatives Governmental Affairs Committee on December 10th, 2020. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. On or about the 11th day of December 2020, David James Schaefer reserved room 216 at the Georgia State Capitol in Fulton County, Georgia for the December 14th, 2020 meeting of Trump presidential elector nominees in Fulton County, Georgia. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. So wanting to audit the signatures on the mail-in ballots to try to verify whether or not the people who supposedly voted on them and signed them and mailed them in actually did so, that is undermining our democracy. And so is Donald Trump telling people to watch television. But if you're Hillary Clinton and you send 110 classified documents through your secret unsecured email, hoping to avoid any kind of oversight, then you're not charged with any crimes at all. From the group of 30,000 emails returned to the State Department in 2014, 110 emails in 52 email chains have been determined by the owning agency to contain classified information at the time they were sent or received. And some of those mysteriously showed up on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Meanwhile, this is the supposed president of the United States. Will you come talk about the Hawaii response, Mr. President? He literally smiled and said no comment. Not even a quick, yeah, it's terrible. We're doing everything we can. We're getting FEMA there. The National Guard, we're mobilizing all the possible resources we can to help those people. No comment. And this was President Trump in good spirits before the indictment, anticipating the inevitable. Every time they file an indictment, we go way up in the polls. We need one more indictment to close out this election. <laughs> one more indictment, and this election is closed out. Nobody has even a chance. We've already defeated the Republicans. There are two and three and one. Some people live for the fight, and it does appear to be energizing Donald Trump even more. And uh, and then we're going to share the next video, which is uh, Georgia court posts Trump RICO charges, uh, then denies uh, rampant corruption. This is a huge story. I think when they look back on this period, this will be a key component of it. From Politico. Georgia court posts then removes document detailing charges against Trump. The document which which Reuters first reported came from the Fulton County Court listed 12 felony counts and one serious felony count for violating Georgia's RICO Act. Here's the thing. The grand jury is, is, is still in. They haven't convened. How could they have these documents ready to go? Many they're suggesting that the Georgia DA planned to charge Trump regardless of what the grand jury actually did. Politico says the county court in Georgia, where Donald Trump is expected to be charged this week, briefly posted and quickly removed a document on Monday detailing several charges against the former president over his alleged election interference in the state in 2020. The document, which Reuters first reported, came from the Fulton County Court, includes Trump's name and lists the case's status as open. It is dated August 14th and timestamped 1239 p.m. The document lists 12 felony counts and a serious felony count for violating their RICO Act. This is crazy. I think we have the 
document right here. This is it. Case information, state of state of Georgia versus Donald uh, John Trump. You've got the case number, the filing date. I'm just going to say this right now. If there is a filing date on a court document listing charges, I can say definitively they filed charges against Trump. Now, I, I think we can get semantic semantic uh, or, or a bit pedantic and say perhaps filing a charging document is different from literally bringing charges against Trump. But I think the fact that they did this is telling and no one is going to trust them over this. They've pulled this document down. They're issuing no comment. So I don't I don't I don't know what to think about this, but it, it certainly seems I don't know, man, I, I'm calling it seditious conspiracy that they're they were working to take down Trump. The grand jury, which is supposed to be the normal process to bring about indictments, is meaningless, fake. And they were going to do this anyway because their real goal is to cheat in the 2024 election. So just as the common man here, I'm a little I just don't know the process very well. But a grand jury is going to get together and they're going to talk about what to bring, what charges to bring. And then after they decide, they'll build a paper like what we have here, this case information document. Um, but you're saying that the grand jury hadn't even decided yet. And the document was already prepared. The grand jury just finished hearing some testimony today. They were they're, they're still in hearing evidence. So, look, I, again, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but what I'm seeing from a lot of high profile personalities and people who are literally lawyers is that it it appears that they've filed charges against Trump with the grand jury still in session. Well, the thing that's crazy to me about it is even if you're gonna like indict Trump, ultimately, if you're going to do what you're doing, this vicious thing, you're trying to over, do this election interference as of this, what this is what would it be? Why would you release this document and then pull it back? Like, why would you already mess up? Like you're everybody doesn't believe you even more now when you come out and you do these things and now you're going to like put out like some kind of massive mess up like this it could be that they just want to be like look how much control we have like they're just dangling it they're like you they're can't not, stop you us you think they're just being arrogant saying, i don't think they are but it, that would be one possibility that they're like yo we're just going to commit crimes in plain sight now and you can't stop us i, um, I worked in politics i don't think they're that smart <laughs> to be quite honest with you I, that's the, like they get if they had this plan and i actually they will they could have been they could have had this whole plan to you know completely destroy trump already but and they messed up that's another thing that politicians do all the time they mess up consistently like we see biden do it pretty much every day but like i just don't understand why they would already release this and then pull it back like i mean well they screwed up obviously it can't yeah. it can't be out there I, what i wonder is what trump's legal team is going to do in response right because to be to to basically imply no matter what he is getting charged uh, really raises questions about due process. He's not even being indicted by a grand jury. He's being indicted by the lead prosecutor in, in Georgia, which is crazy. Mike Cernovich said Fulton County DA indicted Trump under Georgia's RICO law. Reuters obtained the documents. The grand jury is still meeting. The law isn't being followed. This is state sponsored lynching. Mike's a lawyer. I mean, so I can only imagine he recognizes these documents, but perhaps there is some kind of uh, argument i'm trying to i'm trying to you know be reasonable here maybe this is a list of potential charges that are being considered i don't know like, I, I don't i don't know how they pop like it seems at the at, if i was going to be nice to these people which I, I absolutely would never be they have a list of potential charges that they said whoops over and published yeah like it's like this is what we want to charge him with let's hope the grand jury goes for it so we'll have the document ready to go as soon as they say yes then we'll publish it well, either way, they they probably like how we do these things. Well, how I used to do these things, we'd write two things and be like, "This is what is probably going to happen," and one of these two things might happen. Either way, they click that button first. Yeah. Like that was the first one they clicked. So they're 
no matter what they say, there's going to be a little edge to like they think this indictment's coming in the way they think it's going to come. But like, then they, Reuters blamed uh, the Georgia court system. They said, oh, the court, this document was up and then they took it down. And because this link you can see in the URL is a is a Reuters Foundation link. So they're saying it's not that we messed up as reporters. It's that the court. Oh, I'm, I, are we not talking? I thought we were talking about the court system, like trying to subvert him, not the not Reuters. Correct. That's what I, I think. think it's, yeah. I mean, I think both. Right. Like if Reuters, who released who published the story first, is saying the the court system had it up and then took it down that's interesting because then reuters knew to look for the document mm. which why would it be out if the jury hasn't convened oh, that's a really good point mm. how did reuters get tipped off the document was published unless it's it's possible that because the grand jury is in they have a reporter reporter just sitting there hitting refresh nonstop on this court listing page it's totally reasonable well, they probably I, I it, well, they got a tip well no uh reuters actually I could be totally wrong about this. It's been a very, very long time since I had anything ever to do with Reuters. This is like 10 years ago when I knew a guy who worked there. My understanding is they, they actually archive and sell legal documents. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this might be right up their alley to say, hey, look, this document just dropped. And then GA was like, how did this get published? Whoops. Immediately took it down. Here's what I got to say. If this document was just a legitimate document pertaining to the potential charges Trump is facing, they'd leave it up. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing to be afraid of. And they would just say, this is the list of charges that the grand jury is currently deliberating on. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, I look, man, I'm not giving these people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah. If I was going to if you were to ask me what what is the reasonable solution, the simple system, Occam's razor, uh, they pre-planned charging Trump a long time ago and the grand jury doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And Georgia, I feel like just has it out for Trump. Georgia's, I feel like, been the thorn in his side for so long. So I'm not really that's. The other char the other cases seem a little bit uh, more shallow too. This seems to be the big one. I think this is the one that people are really worried about. I think this is the case that could really like destroy it. Well, the fabric of the government as we kind of know it. But why do you think that? It's just like this is the one that could put Trump in actual jail, right? That's what that's what people have been telling me at least. But what, what, what maybe? What do you think? It's, it's not so much that that this is the one that can put him in jail. It's that this is the one where there are zealous cult members who want to put him in jail regardless. Mm -hmm. D.C. is scared to remand Trump. New York is scared to remand Trump. Trump. The sheriff in Georgia already said he's getting that mug shot there. Look, man, this is amazing. Republicans, there are conservative district attorneys all over the country. They do nothing. Yeah. And now you've got this novel reading of the law coming out of Georgia where they say we are going to indict the former president and the current mm -hmm. front runner for the Republican Party. And Republicans are going, oh, gee, golly. Yeah. And it's doing nothing. And I think Georgia wants this more than else. They're one of the swing states. So Democrats in Georgia want Trump to be indicted there and solidly locked down as a blue state for 2024. The other thing that's interesting about this, and we were looking at the indictments, this is the fourth one, right? This is number four. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think every well, time. It, it's, it's, the, it's the fourth jurisdiction to issue indictments. I think it's like the 78th or something. Oh, okay, okay. So I think every time they've done this issuance, like over the, I think they, like he's, every time he's fundraised, he's just lost money each time. So I'm wondering how much money he gets off of this one. And if like that really is like showing that his support's going to go down. Well, it's an issue of how much money do people have? So it's not that people aren't supporting him anymore. It's that a guy who gets a hundred bucks a week in, in extra cash already gave it to Trump. Can't mm -hmm. give it again. Yeah. I think everyone has a limit in terms of what they can give in a political cycle, especially, you know, a year and a half out from the election or less than a year and a half at this I point. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what they're doing. They are, they are, one, trying to remove Trump's name from the ballot trying to put him in jail to stop him from running and saddling him with so much legal debt and uh, paperwork that he's unable to run anyway. This is cheating in an election, period. No question. Mm -hmm. You can remember this. I hope in 100 years, if they stumble upon this podcast, we said it. They're cheating. They are targeting the front runner for the Republican Party. 
that with, with the most support who set to win the primary in in all of these ridiculous ways with charges that are clearly bunk and they're trying to reframe and rewrite history to justify it. Yeah. Yeah. Gee, what a coincidence, right? All righty then. Now we are going to go and play this video of federal agencies are starting to arm themselves. It's a, a pretty interesting take. Uh, let's see what they're talking about here. Fewer rights and fewer choices about how we live our lives. Freedom in America is shrinking. And according to one expert, the Constitution has effectively been terminated. The power of the federal government is way out of control. The FBI is spying on Americans. Dale Hurd brings us the details in this eye-opening report. When the Iron Curtain fell in 1989, there was a wave of optimism and excitement that freedom had been unleashed and there would be no going back to totalitarianism. But along the way, something went wrong. Global studies show that for most of the world, freedom has been in decline for many years. Add to that an economy consolidating under larger companies, with consumers seeing their purchasing choices restricted. Small business optimism is now at its lowest point in 10 years. Nearly two in five small businesses could not pay their rent in May. Consumers are having choices taken away from them, especially if the product they want runs on fossil fuel, mainly because of those in power supporting the belief in a man-made climate emergency. Energy analyst Dr. Marlo Lewis accuses Washington of trying to regulate the fossil fuel industry out of the economy. This has put a big damper on capital investment in, in oil companies, natural gas companies, uh, it's also made it very difficult for a coal company in particular, but even for a natural gas company, to get a, sub a substantial loan from the banks. Driving energy costs up and the reliability of the nation's power grid down. Christian Civil Liberties attorney John Whitehead takes the radical view that the Constitution has been effectively terminated because so much of it is now regularly ignored. He says the many heavily armed government agencies and local police forces constitute a standing army on U.S. soil, ready to raid homes in violation of the Fourth Amendment, which protects our right to be secure in our persons and property. The IRS has 4,500 guns, 5 million rounds of ammunition. The Veterans Administration has 11 million rounds of ammo. The Department of Health and Human Services, believe it or not, has 4 million rounds of ammo. The Social Security Administration has 800,000 rounds of ammo for their special agents and armors and guns. Even NASA has a SWAT team. Since 1980, SWAT raids have risen from 3,000 a year to 80,000. Why do our police have to have grenade launchers and MRAPs, which are tanks on tires, in communities of 5,000 people? The Fourth Amendment's dead. And the First Amendment, which was intended to protect speech the majority doesn't like, no longer prevents people from being censored, canceled, deplatformed, or even debanked. A Penn State poll showed most Americans believe they've lost more personal freedoms in the past 10 years than they have gained. While another survey found that one-third of Americans think having a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress or elections would be a good system of government. One of the forces behind the fall of the Iron Curtain and a leader of the Czech Velvet Revolution, Yaroslav Flieder, 
told us he never expected the free world to turn out like this and said he's especially upset that many Americans seem okay with a loss of rights when it's used against their political enemies. People whose rights are being you know, removed, they really do not perceive it that way. They sometimes actually think, almost see it like as a benefit, you know, as a beneficial process because sometimes these rights are taken from people they don't like and they applaud it. And I've, in this situation, situations like that, I always tell them, you know, yeah, it might be actually pleasing now. Just wait until you are the object of this process. When your rights are violated and when, when it's going to be done to you, you won't find it as much, you know, fun as, you know, you're finding it now. Dale Hurd joins us now here in the studio. Dale, you presented it in your report. There was great optimism after the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, then within a generation, uh, this, we've arrived at this point. How did that happen? Yeah, I think it shows how wide the chasm is in our society between right and left. And people want to see constitutional violations used against their political opponents, which is a big mistake. But it also begins with the government. Our own government is, is you, trying to and sometimes using constitutional violations. But in terms of the public, it really isn't 50-50. I didn't stress this in my story, but it's primarily Democrats who uh, believe in limits on speech, and they see the Constitution as an impediment to their remaking America in a more liberal image. John Whitehead says, look, uh, the Constitution's dead. Uh, you have the, all these federal agencies now uh, that have either guns or riot gear and so forth. Uh, what do they say when, yeah. when they're asked about that? Why yeah, do they need it? I don't think any of us have heard a good explanation. I mean, how many armed confrontations does Social Security have in a year with people? What I think is the deep state looks out on the country, they see all the armed citizens, and they're thinking, we need to, to somehow balance this. Um, we need to protect government. And, and that's the only explanation I can come up with. And uh, the Czech uh, velvet revolution there, what about the warning that they're giving? I mean, they know firsthand. They've gone through this. What about these warnings? How come we're not heeding these warnings? Does anybody really care? Are we listening? Yeah, again, because I think the chasm is so wide. I mean, we're in, we're at some part of a pre-Civil War phase in this country. I don't know. Maybe we're very far from it. And when we're praying that the Lord will unify this country and bring us together, but the, the division is so wide, what we should be doing, right and left, is we, we should object when constitutional violations are used against our political opponents because the Constitution was essentially created to protect the minority or views we don't like. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing these violations as a, as a great hammer to beat down our political opponents. The left views the Constitution as, as the, what conservatives want to use to thwart them. And the left would like, would like the Constitution rewritten or out of the way. Okay, we're very polarized, so how do we come together? Yeah. We need to pray. Yeah. Well, Dale Hurd, that's uh, a good uh, note to end on. Thank you, Dale. What an excellent report. Thank you, Keep Gary. up the good work. We Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks for being with us. And for a final news story... Uh, let's share this video about 1.3 million tons of nuclear waste and the disaster that's recently happened as it's been poured out. Diving into the main story, unbeknownst to most people, 
the country of Japan is currently in the process of releasing about a million tons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. And the reason for this stems from what happened 12 years ago during the Fukushima nuclear disaster. If you remember, that was when a giant earthquake as well as a subsequent tsunami caused a near meltdown of a nuclear power plant over in Japan. The situation was a complete mess. The reactors got shut down. The backup generators, which fueled the cooling system, lost power, which then led to three nuclear meltdowns and the contamination of about a million tons of water. Now, for the past 12 years, Japan has kept this water inside of the plant, where they have been slowly treating it. But unfortunately, they have run out of space. And so the Japanese government, they have announced that they will begin to slowly release this treated radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. Now, the big question here is very obviously whether this is safe or not and whether or not it will affect us here in the U.S. And so in order to answer these two pressing questions, let's unpack the entire situation step by step, starting at the very beginning. Twelve years ago, on March 11th of 2011, there was a massive earthquake which registered a 9.0 on the Richter scale over by Japan. That earthquake, it caused a 40-foot-high tsunami to slam into the city of Fukushima, killing over 15,000 people and destroying much of the Fukushima nuclear power plant's cooling systems, causing, as we mentioned earlier, three of the reactors to melt down. Now, as an immediate response to this disaster 12 years ago, in order to prevent an actual nuclear explosion, the plant operators, they began to pump in seawater from the ocean in order to cool down the overheated fuel cores. Now, fortunately, this plan of theirs was a success. There was no nuclear explosion on that fateful day. However, after the disaster was averted, well, the plant operators, they were left with about a ton of this contaminated seawater alongside a growing body of contaminated groundwater. Now, that water, it's been collected, treated, and stored every single day for the past 12 plus years, to the point now where they have a grand total of 1,073 of these giant containers holding 1.3 million tons of treated radiated water. Now the problem though is that they have run out of space. These 1,073 containers account for 97% of this nuclear power plant's total storage capacity, meaning that they quite literally have no more room. And so government officials, alongside officials from TEPCO, the utility company which operates the power plant, they came out and jointly announced that the wastewater must be removed in order to, for one, prevent any accidental leaks in case of another earthquake. And also, the wastewater must be removed because this nuclear power plant is slowly being decommissioned. It'll be decommissioned by the year 2041. And the only way to remove the 1.3 million tons of wastewater is to pour it into the Pacific Ocean. Now, for the past 12 or so years, as we just mentioned, this wastewater was being treated at this facility in order to remove the harmful contaminants. The decontamination process worked something like this. The contaminated water was first treated with cesium and strontium filtering equipment in order to remove most of the contamination before they even put it in the tank. Then, the water was treated in a multi-nuclide removal facility that Japan called ALPS, A-L-P-S, which stands for Advanced Liquid Processing System. This process of theirs works on 62 of the 64 known radioactive isotopes, and it removes enough of these 62 different radionuclides, as they're called, to bring the concentration levels below Japan's regulatory limits. Then, once this whole ALPS treatment process is complete, the water was then put into a storage tank while the concentrated slurry byproduct, which contains all the different contaminants, was sent to a separate storage facility. However, it's worth noting that as good as this ALPS process appears to be, it does not remove two of the known radioactive isotopes, namely carbon-14 as well as tritium. And for your reference, tritium, also known as hydrogen-3, 
is chemically identical to normal water, which is exactly why separating it from wastewater is, for one, expensive. Secondly, it's very energy intensive. And also, generally, it's very time consuming. But as far as radioactive elements go, tritium is kind of a mixed bag. It's on one hand, relatively benign. From the research, it's been shown to pass through living organisms in a similar way to water, and it doesn't appear to strongly accumulate in the bodies of living things. The problem, though, is that as tritium decays, it gives off a beta particle that can damage DNA if it's actually ingested. But then the positive side to that is that this beta particle is not very energetic, meaning that a person would need to ingest a lot of it to get a significant dose of radiation. And so, taken as a whole, High doses of tritium is dangerous, but extremely microscopic doses might not be. At least that's the theory that the Japanese are going with. Because what they did is that they diluted this treated water so that it's less than one part per 100 parts seawater. This dilution process, theoretically at least, makes the relative level of carbon-14 and tritium in the wastewater to be acceptable. Specifically, the Tokyo Energy Production Company, otherwise known as TEPCO, they're the ones who actually operate this nuclear facility over in the city of Fukushima, and their officials came out and said that the resulting concentration of tritium in the wastewater is around 1,500 becquerels per liter. Now, becquerels per liter, by the way, is a measure of the amount of radioactivity in a given substance. And the level that they claim to have achieved is actually significantly lower than the guidelines for tritium in drinking water that were put out by the WHO, the World Health Organization. Specifically, in a recent report that's titled Guidelines for Drinking Water Quality, the World Health Organization wrote that in terms of tritium, 10,000 becquerels per liter is acceptable. And so the 1,500 becquerels per liter that the Japanese were able to achieve is well below that range. Meaning that as long as you trust the guidelines that were issued by the WHO, this water is well within the limits that are safe for humans and animals. However, it appears that not everyone trusts that the water is safe. Specifically, the people and the countries closest to the site of the dump. For instance, once this plan was made public, you had the Japanese National Fishermen Association come out and strongly oppose it. And then you also had the governments of the countries in the local vicinity, Russia, South Korea, and China, all come out and express quote-unquote serious concerns about the release of this water into their oceanic backyard. Also, interestingly, while America's climate envoy, Mr. John Kerry, was visiting South Korea, he was met by these creative protesters. And the reason that they were there protesting his visit was because John Kerry was in South Korea advocating for the release of this water. Here was specifically what John Kerry said in regards to this plan by the Japanese to release the wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Quote, The United States is confident that the government of Japan is in very full consultations with the International Atomic Energy Agency. The agency has set up a very rigorous process, and I know that Japan has weighed all the options and the effects, and they've been very transparent about the decision and the process. Now, the organization that he mentioned here in the statement, the International Atomic Energy Agency, it's a global organization that deals with the peaceful use of nuclear technology. And indeed, just as John Kerry mentioned in his statement, on the very same day that J Japan announced this plan to dump this water, the director of this organization released their own statement, affirming Japan's decision, while at the same time assuring the world that the release of this water is perfectly fine. Here was part of what he said, quote, The water disposal method Japan has chosen is both technically feasible and in line with international practice, even though the large amounts of water makes it a unique and complex case. Furthermore, this director went on to mention that while this case in Japan is very high profile, in reality, releasing lightly radiated water back into the environment is a common practice for nuclear reactors around the entire world. Here's what he said, quote, 
Controlled water discharges into the sea are routinely used by operational nuclear power plants in the world and are done under strict safety and environmental standards. And to that point of his, the Japan Forward newspaper made a point to publish an article detailing how both China and South Korea released nuclear wastewater into the oceans. Quote, China's Fuching plant released 52 trillion barrels of tritium in 2020, and South Korea's Kori facility, near its second largest city, released 50 trillion barrels in 2018, more than double Japan's plan. And then interestingly, as a part of that article, they also included an infographic showing the amount of tritium that different power plants across the whole world are releasing into the oceans and the seas every single year. And that, I believe, is really the heart of the matter. Because while this case in Japan is unique, and maybe because of its uniqueness it has garnered a lot of attention, the reality is that nuclear power plants around the world are releasing the same, if not more, nuclear wastewater into the environment every single year. And so here's the irony. While a lot of people here in America are looking at the water that's being released into the Pacific Ocean by the Japanese and being worried about it, most people are completely unaware that over in Massachusetts, you have pretty much the exact same situation playing itself out. Over there, the recently closed Pilgrim nuclear power plant is working to get authorization from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in order to dump over 1.1 million gallons of water that they used to cool the nuclear fuel rods into the Cape Cod Bay. And even further than that, there was a recent article published in a local Massachusetts news outlet, which quoted an anonymous official within the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, who said that even before they needed to dump this 1.1 million gallons of water, the Pilgrim nuclear facility regularly discharged wastewater into Cape Cod Bay for decades. And furthermore, that admission was not even a scandal, because according to the FAQ page on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's website, it very well confirms that federal regulations allow for wastewater discharge as long as it falls within the safety limits of existing regulations. And so what all this means in practice is that the wastewater that's being released over in Japan will probably dissipate a million times over before reaching the shores of the U.S. However, if you were genuinely worried about this nuclear wastewater over in Japan, well, you should know that the same nuclear wastewater is being released right now, right at this moment, all over the world, including right here in the good old U.S. of A. But everything's okay, because according to the officials who are in charge of it all, the levels of radiation that in this particular wastewater is safe for both humans, animals, as well as the environment. All right, Jeremiah, that's all the news for this week. And uh, back to you. Thank you, Jake, for another great current news as always. Now a quick look at my mom's book, The Protocol That Kills. King's Gate Media and Skiba News Nation present an exhaustive expose on government. The new amazing book, The Emotional and Disturbing True Story. Sheila Skiba. Following Rob Skiba's death, his widow, Sheila, and co-authors spent countless hours analyzing 40 days of recorded conversations, the transcripts of which appear in the book. This is an extremely well-written first-hand account of the horrors Sheila Skiba endured for the 40 days her husband was held captive in the hospital. It was hard to read and relive since I vividly remember when this was happening to this precious man. But I believe every person needs to know what was going on during the insanity of the pandemic. Sheila Skiba, The Protocol That Kills a True Crime Story. This book shares a wealth of critical insights that will greatly aid in preventing future needless losses of life. Available on Amazon. Order now. Find more at theprotocolthatkills.com. So there'll be a link in the description below where you can get yourself a copy if you haven't already got it. So. It's about that time for an all-new Opa's Corner. Take it away, Opa. The following presentation may contain too many cat jokes. Viewer discretion is advised. This presentation is rated CJ, Cat Jokes. 
Parental Guidance Suggested. It's Opa's Corner Time, so let's get started. A police detective was testing three new recruits in recognizing a suspect. To test their skills, he shows the first recruit a picture for five seconds and then hides it. This is your suspect. How would you recognize him? Oh, that's easy. We'll catch him fast because he only has one eye. <laughs> well, uh, that's because the picture I showed is his side profile. Slightly flustered by this ridiculous response, he flashes the picture for five seconds at the second recruit and asks him, This is your suspect. How would you recognize him? The second recruit smiles, flips his hair, and says, Ha! He'd be too easy to catch because he only has one ear. <laughs> What's the matter with you two? Of course only one eye and one ear are showing because it's a picture of his side profile. Is that the best answer you can come up with? Extremely frustrated at this point, he shows the picture to the third recruit and in a very testy voice asks, this is your suspect. How would you recognize him? Think hard before giving me a stupid answer. The third recruit looks at the picture intently for a moment and says, The suspect wears contact lenses. The detective is surprised and speechless because he really doesn't know himself if the suspect wears contacts or not. Well, that, that's an interesting answer. Wait here for a few minutes while I check his file and I'll get back to you on that. He leaves the room and goes to his office, checks the suspect's file on his computer, and comes back with a beaming smile on his face. Wow, I can't believe it. It's true. The suspect does in fact wear contact lenses. Good work. How were you able to make such an astute observation? <laughs> oh, that's easy. He can't wear regular glasses because he only has one eye and one ear. <laughs> I was on a regular drive to work when suddenly a police car flags me down to stop. I await nervously while he saunters over and wraps his knuckles sharply on my window. Do you know why I pulled you over? Because of the... Uh, because of the... Because of the... Because of the honk if you think cops are idiots bumper sticker? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
A blonde, wanting to earn some money, decided to hire herself out as a handyman type and started canvassing a wealthy neighborhood. She went to the front door of the first house and asked the owner if he had any jobs for her to do. Well, you can paint my front porch. How much will you charge? Oh, uh, how about $50? The man agreed and told her that the paint and ladders that she might need were in the garage. The man's wife inside the house heard the conversation and said to her husband, Does she realize that the porch goes all the way around the house? She should. She was standing on the porch. A short time later, the blonde came to the door to collect her money. You're finished already? Yes, and I have paint left over, so I gave it two coats. Impressed, the man reached into his wallet for the $50. And by the way, it's not a Porsche, it's a Ferrari. <laughs> when it's clear that Joe is dying, Mike visits him every day. One day, Mike says, Joe, we both love football all our lives, and we played football on Saturdays together for so many years. Please do me a favor. When you get to heaven, somehow you must tell me if there's football up there. Joe looks up at Mike from his deathbed and says, Mike, you're my best friend for many years. If it's all possible, I'll do this favor for you. Shortly after that, Joe passes on. At midnight, a few nights later, Mike is awakened from a sound sleep by a blinding flash of white light and a voice calling out to him. Mike, Mike, who, who is it? asks Mike, sitting up suddenly. Who, who is it? Mike, it's me, Joe. You're not Joe. Joe just died. I'm telling you, it's me, Joe. Joe, where are you? In heaven. I have some really good news and a little bad news. Tell me the good news first. The good news is there's football in heaven. Better yet, all of our old friends who died before us are here too. Better than that, we're all young again. Better still, it's always springtime and it never rains or snows. And best of all, we can play football all we want and we never get tired. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. That's beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, so, so what's the bad news? You're on our team for Saturday's match. <laughs> a blonde just totaled her car in a horrific accident. Miraculously, she managed to pry herself from the wreckage without a scratch and was applying fresh lipstick when the state trooper arrived. My 
God, your car looks like an accordion that was stomped on by an elephant. Are you okay, ma'am? Yes, officer. I'm just fine. Well, well, how in the world did this happen? Officer, it was the strangest thing. I was driving along this road when from out of nowhere this tree pops up in front of me. So I swerved to the right and, and there was another tree. I swerved to the left and there, there was another tree. I swerved to the right and there was another tree. I swerved to the left and there was... Uh, <coughs> Ma'am, there isn't a tree on this road for 30 miles. That was your air freshener swinging back and forth. <laughs> a woman has a heart attack. Before she dies, she meets God. When I die, no, you will live for another 40 years, two months, and eight days. At this instance, she snapped back to life. After the heart attack, she decides to make the most of her life. She gets a facelift, liposuction, a tummy tuck. She even gets a surgery to change the color of her hair. After her final surgery, she walks out and gets hit by a car and dies. She goes up in heaven and meets God. She's steaming. What was that? What? You died. You said I'd live another 40 years. Oh. God thought for a while. I didn't recognize you. <laughs> a man is walking through the woods and he finds a magic lamp on the ground. Instinctively, he picks the lamp up, rubs the side of it with his sleeve, and out pops a genie. The genie thanks the man for freeing him and offers to grant him three wishes. The man is ecstatic and knows exactly what he wants. First, I want a billion dollars. The genie snaps his finger and a briefcase full of money materializes out of thin air. The man is wide-eyed in amazement and continues. Next, I want a Ferrari. The genie snaps his fingers and a Ferrari appears from a puff of smoke. Finally, I want to be irresistible to women. The genie snaps his fingers and the man promptly turns into a box of chocolates. <laughs> and now for the funnies. <laughs> <laughs> For sale. Are you the owners? We're ten ants. <laughs> My tenants. Take us to your leader. Only if you promise to take him back with you. <laughs> Organic K 
cafe bar. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Did I not mention she's stuck in a bonsai tree? <laughs> All I'm saying is there are pirates and there are pirates. You do this every time you start to lose. <laughs> For Mother Goose, inspiration struck at the most unexpected moments. <laughs> Day 39 on the Ark. I thought the limit was two. <laughs> Grab it! Now! <laughs> Easy lift. The chair that gently lifts you to your feet. <laughs> he did it! <laughs> hey, Bob wants in. Does anyone know how to work this thing? <laughs> He always hides when company comes over. <laughs> Why dogs stick their heads out of car windows? Man, these people stink. <laughs> High school reunion. Twicky! You haven't changed a bit. <laughs> well, well. Seems your weight is perfect. You just happen to be 11 feet too short. <laughs> I don't like mimes, but he's good. <laughs> Al's Sign Shop. The world ends tomorrow. I'm a little short on cash. Can I pay my tide next month? <laughs> Pacino? 
No thanks. I only drink decat. Mm. <laughs> Sorry about this. I died at a costume party. <laughs> Pizza, pizza. It's just in case they won't let the horse in. <laughs> I don't like the looks of this. <laughs> Trivia tonight. Yes! That's right! The answer is Wisconsin! Another 50 points for God. And, uh-oh, looks like Norman, our current champion, hasn't even scored yet. <laughs> oh yeah, he heard it all right. Get ready! <laughs> this morning, I let my human sleep an extra ten minutes before I smacked him on the nose. <laughs> it's nice to do random acts of kindness. <laughs> You really don't remember me, Greg? Little Johnny Dweebo Glenn? You pushed me in the mud 23 times? 42 wedgies in the 6th grade? Are we there yet? Here. Almost. <laughs> Our think-outside-the-box policy has been discontinued until further notice. <laughs> Well, isn't this nice, quiet country road not another car in sight? <laughs> I before E except after C. Disproved by science. And that concludes another Opa's Corner. My hut, der hat drei Ecken. 
Drei Ecken hat mein Hut und hat er nicht drei Ecken, dann ist es nicht mein Hut. Opa's Corner is now available on my own YouTube channel. Like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, Opa, for another great Opus Corner, as always. Uh, now a word from our good friend and sponsor, JJ. Are you tired of living in constant pain? Do you feel like you've tried every CBD product on the market with no relief? Look no further than JJ's Natural CBD Rub. When I was diagnosed with degenerative disc disease, this was the only product that completely took my pain away. Working with JJ has been a dream come true, and his products have completely changed my life. Don't just take my word for it. Visit JJ's website, jjcbdrub.com and read hundreds of testimonials from people whose lives have been changed by all of JJ's amazing products. And now, as a Skiba News Nation exclusive, you can get $50 off a three-pack special of JJ's Natural CBD Rub by texting CBD to 920-382-7720. Don't suffer in silence any longer. Take control of your pain today with JJ's Natural CBD Rub. Again, text CBD to 920 382-7720 for an exclusive discount and start feeling the relief you deserve. The links are in the description below. Now, if you haven't already tried it, get yourself some JJ CBD rub because it is the best. So thank you, JJ. All right, it's time for some mystery. So sometimes when I'm looking for a history topic to pick, I often ask our Patreons when I need help. And so I did a poll last week on what topics should I do or what topic should I choose for this week's history. And the most requested was a deeper dive into the Charlie Manson and MK Ultra connection. So with this first clip, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background uh, because we've covered it in a couple episodes. One of them was actually deleted from YouTube. Um, probably for that reason, but we'll try it, you know? So this first clip, like I said, will be, will bring you back to the murders and will bring you back to what the prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi said that Charlie Manson and his family committed. So let's play that first clip. In the annals of crime, there might have never been a more infamous case than that of Charles Manson and his band of brainwashed acolytes. Over half a century after his vile escapades, Manson remains firmly etched in our collective imagination as the quintessential Svengali. His dreadful deeds marked a watershed in world history, sounding the death knell of the 60s utopian dream of peace and free love. And although his case was subject to tremendous public attention, his trial being the largest in Los Angeles history at the time, it has recently come to light that crucial details presented in the official narrative were deliberately fabricated by the prosecution, and that many of the key questions surrounding the case remain to this day, shrouded in mystery. Recent discoveries tell a story very different to the one that lead prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi told the world in 1970. These findings paint an elaborate web of conspiracy and corruption, shadowy government agents, mad scientists, and a CIA-sponsored mind control program with Manson at the center of it all. On the evening of August 8, 1969, at the Spawn Ranch in California, a man and three women piled into an old yellow Ford. A ranch hand heard one of the women yell, 
were going to get some pigs before driving off toward Beverly Hills. That woman's name was Suzanne Atkins. Huddled beside her in the back of the car was Patricia Krenwinkle. The passenger seat was occupied by Linda Kasabian and at the wheel sat Charles Watson, known to everyone as Tex Watson. They were part of a hippie commune that affectionately called itself the family. Living a drug-fueled and isolated existence at the Spawn Ranch, they preached environmentalism, free love, and apocalyptic Christianity. But above all else, they lived to serve their leader, Charles Mills Manson, who had ordered them to take their trip that night. After a 45-minute drive, the black-clad foursome arrived in front of the Bel Air residence of actress Sharon Tate. Tate shared the home with her husband, now notorious film director Roman Polanski, who was in London at the time scouting locations for his next film. In his absence, three friends kept Sharon company. Coffee heiress Abigail Folger, her lover Wojtek Frakowski, and celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. While Linda Kasabian stayed at the bottom to keep watch, the other three began heading up the hill leading to the residence. At the top of the driveway, they encountered Stephen Parent, an 18-year-old who had been visiting the property's caretaker. He was sitting in a car with his window rolled down to activate the electric gate below. Tex leapt toward the open window, pushed his gun through it, and pulled the trigger four times. The first victim of the infamous Tate LaBianca murders was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Tex then gained access to the house by cutting a screen door leading to the dining room and proceeded to open the door to let Atkins and Krenwinkel in. They quickly herded the four residents of the home to the living room at knife point. Thinking that this was a robbery, the victims offered their valuables and pleaded with the intruders not to hurt anyone. Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time, pleaded with Atkins to let her and her baby live. Atkins replied, I don't care if you're going to have a baby. You better be ready. You're going to die. What unfolded next would go down as one of the bloodiest mass murders in US history. Tate was stabbed 16 times. Sebring was shot twice and stabbed seven times. Folger was stabbed 28 times. And Frakowski was shot twice, pummeled on the head with the butt of the gun until his skull was cracked and stabbed 51 times. Atkins dipped a finger in one of Tate's wounds and tasted her blood. It was warm, sticky, and nice, she'd recall later. She then soaked a towel in blood and, like a painter signing a dreadful portrait, she used it to scribble the word pig on the front door of the house, bringing the bloodbath to a conclusion. The four returned to the ranch, where their leader Charles Manson asked them if they felt any remorse. They all said no and went to sleep. But they weren't done yet. The same group reconvened that day with three additions, Stephen Grogan, Leslie Van Houten, and their leader Charles Manson. The seven drove that same old Ford through the streets of Los Angeles for three hours looking for their next victims, before Manson finally settled on a house in Los Feliz next to a house he'd once stayed in. Not knowing who lived there, Manson broke into the home and found Lino LaBianca asleep in the living room and his wife Rosemary asleep in the bedroom. He tied up the couple and returned to his gang outside. He chose Tex, Krenwinkle, and Van Houten as his executioners and sent them inside to kill the couple. They entered the home and separated the two. They stabbed Leno 26 times. They carved the word war on his stomach and impaled a carving fork beside it. They also left a steak knife protruding from his throat. Rosemary was also stabbed to death, 41 times, most of which occurred after death. Before they left, the killers wrote Helter Skelter in blood on their refrigerator, a misspelling of a Beatles song title. They also smeared rise and death to pigs on the walls of the house in Lino's blood. Needless to say, news of the seven murders shook the United States and the rest of the world. 
It was as if August 8th and August 9th existed in different realities. And with the suspects unknown and at large, rumors spread like wildfire. Sensationalist reports calling the murders of blood and ritualistic killings only fed the panic. The LAPD believed that the LaBianca killings were the result of a copycat attack and that the two sets of murders were unrelated. They assigned a team to each of the two cases working independently of one another. As weeks turned into months without any breakthroughs in either case, the LAPD became the subject of ridicule in the press until December 1st, 1969, when the chief of police, Edward M. Davis, held a press conference announcing that the murders had been solved. I am Edward Davis, uh, chief of police of the city of Los Angeles. Information from the two separate investigations of the Tate and LaBianca cases led detectives to the conclusion that the crimes in both cases were committed by the same group of people. When the world first heard news of the Manson family and the shocking crimes they committed, experts attempted to make sense of it all by first categorizing the family. Was the family a cult or a criminal gang? It is noteworthy that for the past several decades, a fierce debate has been raging at the juncture of psychology, religion, and the law regarding the term cult. It has proven exceedingly difficult for professionals in these fields to agree on a unitary definition, not least because of the sheer heterogeneity of cults in terms of beliefs and practices. So most people know the Manson family or Charles Manson. They think of them as the most evil people to ever live. Uh, I, I, it's fair to say that, right, Opa? So, do you remember where you were in 1969? Do you remember when all this went down? Were people scared? Uh, I was in college, and uh, I don't know. I. You were living in Texas, though, so it was kind of far away from California. Yeah, I mean, it really didn't bother me too much, I guess. Yeah, so that's basically what all the public knew, was what that clip just shared. But... Now I'm going to be showing you how MK Ultra kind of first started and how, you know, you kind of see the early signs of MK Ultra with the Manson family. So check this out. As cults came under increasing critical scrutiny, experts had to grapple with the uncomfortable realization that distinguishing cults from long-established religions was no easy task. This resulted in a litany of biased and value-laden definitions. The Manson family presents as a clear outlier among destructive cults in several attributes. The family members who killed at Manson's behest did not have any history of violence or mental illness. Nothing in their histories offers the smallest indication that they were capable of committing the savage murders that history remembers them for. The sheer physical violence and brutality with which the murders were carried. Committing murder with a knife requires overcoming a far greater psychological barrier than committing murder with poison or a firearm the psychological barrier to killing is largely determined by the distance at which the killing occurs. Hints of this phenomenon can be observed in Stanley Milgram's famous experiments on obedience. The subjects of the experiment were told that researchers were studying the effects of physical punishment on learning. As such, the experiment required a teacher and a learner. The volunteers were assigned the role of teacher, and unbeknownst to them, the learner was planted by the researchers and trained to behave in specific ways during the experiment. The teacher was then given a seat in front of a shock generator a frightening apparatus with 30 toggle switches capable of delivering 30 levels of electric shock to the learner. The teacher is then tasked with asking the learner questions from a given list. With each incorrect answer, the teacher is instructed by the experimenter to administer an electric shock to the learner, increasing the voltage with every question. The learner, who of course did not receive any shock at all, intentionally gave wrong answers and as instructed by the researchers, he screamed in agony, pounded on the wall and begged the teacher to stop. He kind of did some yelling in there. Sad face. Get me out of here. 
Milgram wanted to study how much damage a person is capable of inflicting on another under the orders of an apparent authority figure. Three variations of the experiment were conducted. One where both teacher and learner were placed in the same room, another where they were separated by a wall, and a final variation where they were placed in different parts of the building, eliminating the learner's reaction from the experiment. A clear pattern emerged. Participants obeyed the experimenter less as physical, visual, and auditory contact with the learner increased. There exists in mentally sound humans a deep aversion to hurting or killing one another. This phenomenon has been well documented and studied by the US military. It first came to light when it was discovered that during the Second World War, only 15 to 20% of American riflemen shot at the enemy with the intention to kill, showing just how difficult it is to overcome the psychological barrier to killing, even when one's life depended on it. Colonel Grossman, a professor of psychology and of military science, studied this resistance to kill and how it relates to distance. The result was this graph. It clearly shows that as distance decreases, the resistance to kill increases. The murders committed by the Manson family were committed at the smallest possible distance. The killings were deeply visceral and personal, and did not result in any psychological trauma or remorse in those who committed them. Patricia Krenwinkel, who was born to a middle-class family, attended Catholic college with the intent of becoming a nun. During her trial, she said she felt nothing when she stabbed Abigail Folger 28 times. Suzanne Atkins, who sang in her church choir and devoted herself to nursing her dying mother, said, when you stab a person, it's better than having a climax, when describing killing the eight and a half months pregnant actress. She also recounted the taste of Sharon's blood as warm, sticky, and nice. For this to have been possible, Manson had to cultivate within his followers a massive change of personality, unlike anything observed in other destructive cults. Not only did Manson achieve such a remarkable feat, but he also did it in record time another distinguishing attribute that separates the family from other destructive cults. They destroy the ego, effectively causing the individual to regress to a childlike state where autonomy and individuality exist no more. Establishing an environment capable of achieving these results requires long years of trial and error and refinement. After such an environment has been successfully established, more time is required to apply the methods of thought reform on the recruits. For example, the Yomshin Rikyu cult existed for seven years before its members were ordered to kill, and the members involved in the gas attack were part of the cult for an average of about five years before killing at the leader's behest, enough time to transform their personalities. The Manson family, on the other hand, existed for only two years before the murders began. Tex Watson was described by everyone who knew him as a nice Texas boy with no history of violence. He was an honor roll student and a church youth group leader with a bright future. It took only nine months to transform him into a psychopathic killer. Leslie Van Houten was transformed in 11 months. As for Atkins and Krenwinkel, their transformation occurred over the course of two years. Now Manson was a seasoned pimp, and as a result he was well versed in manipulation techniques. 
But none of this could explain the insane speed with which he managed to radically transform his followers. The only thing that does explain it is his extensive and unique use of LSD as an agent of mind control. Now, LSD and mind control. That's interesting, right? I mean, it's my belief that Charlie Manson didn't kill anybody. Even if he told his followers to go and kill, he shouldn't have been charged with first-degree murder, and these are the reasons why. There's no physical evidence, nothing puts him at the scene of the crime, there's abs absolutely no evidence that he, was, that he planned to kill anyone. Furthermore, the most common motives of murder are love, lust, and loot. So, that makes no sense because they didn't steal anything. They didn't, uh, you know, assault any of the victims. Nothing besides stabbing, I, I will say, you know, you know what I mean. So, I believe the Manson family, they used Charlie Manson as a patsy, just like Lee Harvey Oswald. They used him to their benefit. Now, to further prove how much MKUltra really played in the Manson murders, check out this next clip. As previously mentioned, the process of brainwashing revolves around the destruction or dissolution of the ego. Now, before proceeding into how this process relates to LSD, it is prudent to briefly investigate what the ego is. The concept of ego has been a topic of debate in philosophy and science since ancient times. It is perhaps best viewed as an umbrella or constellation construct that subsumes a broad range of mental phenomena and functions, such as self-awareness, self-monitoring, self-recognition, self-identity, self-control, the sense of agency and ownership, theory of mind, subject-object differentiation, and reality testing. It is a crucial feature of normal human consciousness. The ubiquity of the ego invites the assumption that it is a permanent feature of human consciousness. However, research has revealed that the ego is rather vulnerable and can dissolve in certain altered states of mind. This ego dissolution manifests as a feeling that the border between oneself and the external world is disintegrating. Research subjects report, My body is not my own. I feel like I'm a bystander watching myself. I feel as if I have no body. And I feel like I'm blended with the universe. Examples of altered states of consciousness where ego dissolution is observed include acute psychosis, temporal lobe epilepsy, as well as non-pathological states such as mystical or religious experiences. More importantly, ego dissolution can be induced with the use of psychedelic drugs such as psilocybin, DMT, and of course, LSD, colloquially known as acid. The family partook in hundreds of group LSD sessions over the course of two years. If you recall, one of the cognitive functions that the ego subsumes is reality testing. It is this function that allows the normal waking human to discriminate between the internal world of thoughts and feelings and the outer real world. Meaning that when the ego is impaired, the ability to distinguish between fantasy and reality suffers greatly. With their egos long dissolved, they could not intervene. They simply obeyed. During the sentencing phase of the family's trial, the defense sought to spare Manson's followers the death sentence by arguing that they had completely been brainwashed and as a result did not possess any free will. To bolster their argument, the defense called a research psychologist named Joel Fort to the witness stand. Dr. Fort was an expert on the long-term effects of LSD abuse and founded the nation's first LSD treatment center. When asked if LSD could be used as a tool for brainwashing and mind control, he said yes, but to his knowledge, it has never been done before. 
This exchange touches on the essence of the mystery surrounding Charles Manson. How could a barely literate, petty criminal like Charles Manson, who spent over half his life in prison, develop such sophisticated techniques that transformed a group of formerly peaceful hippies into remorseless killers? Some authors will have you believe that Manson was some kind of genius. This is demonstrably false. He was given two IQ tests, once when he was 16 and again when he was 23. He scored 109 and 121 points respectively. While the latter score is certainly above average, it is far from genius. So his intellect can't account for what he achieved. Manson only discovered LSD less than a month before gaining his first follower. He got out of prison in 1967, moved to Height Ashbury, a San Francisco neighborhood that had become a hub for hippie culture. There he tried LSD for the first time and almost immediately afterwards he began using it to brainwash his growing group of followers, achieving results that experts who studied the drug for years could not even dream of. It is mind-boggling how fast it all happened. It's akin to someone picking up a guitar for the first time and improvising a tune that professional musicians couldn't replicate. He was methodical in his use of LSD, almost clinical. In fact, the only other entity in the world that used LSD as a mean to the same sophisticated ends as Matson did was the CIA. During the Cold War, American intelligence learned that the Soviet Union was developing a program to influence human behavior through drugs and hypnosis. The United States believed that the Soviets could extract confessions from people and program them to carry out orders all without the subject's knowledge. As a countermeasure, the CIA launched Project Bluebird in 1949, a mind control program that engaged in drug testing on unwitting American citizens, mostly in federal prisons and military bases. The CIA's efforts were reinforced when, in 1952, American pilots who were captured in Korea confessed to their captors that they were sent there to deploy illegal biological weapons. The US government of course categorically denied the allegation, and the CIA claimed that the confessions were the result of sophisticated brainwashing techniques. After the war ended, the prisoners who made the confessions returned to the United States, and the army brought in a team of scientists to deprogram them. They were successfully reintegrated into American society, and the deprogramming was considered a success. Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's poisons expert, and Richard Helms, the CIA's chief of operations, then convinced the agency's director Alan Dulles that mind control was the future, shifting the CIA's focus from defensive to offensive measures. Project Bluebird became Project Artichoke, which later morphed into MKUltra. Broadly speaking, the program's goal was to study the use of biological and chemical materials in altering human behavior. The CIA attempted to answer questions such as, can we obtain control of the future activities, physical and mental, of any individual, willing or unwilling, with a guarantee of amnesia? They asked, can we force an individual to act against his own moral concepts? And, can an individual be made to perform an act of attempted assassination? The agency investigated many of these questions through the use of LSD on unwitting test subjects, such as psychiatric patients, prisoners, sex workers, and terminal cancer patients. Sidney Gottlieb, the program's architect and one of the most vile humans to ever walk the earth, described the perfect test subjects as people who could not fight back. One of the many scientists conducting this research was Louis J. West, known to everyone as Jolly West. Documents discovered by journalist Tom O'Neill show that West was attempting, among other things, to hone techniques for implanting false information into particular subjects or for inducing in them specific mental disorders. 
He was a leading expert in LSD, violence, hypnosis, and cults. West even predicted the rise of LSD cults, warning the reader that the substance left the user unusually susceptible and emotionally labile. Within the context of his expertise and the research he conducted for the CIA, it is interesting that he was given an office at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. At the very same time, Manson moved to Haight-Ashbury and began frequenting that very same clinic on an almost daily basis. It was during this time, in fact, that Manson began amassing his followers and embarked on his brainwashing project in earnest. So what are your thoughts about those three clips I played so far, Opa? Uh, very enlightening. So the next clip, I know some people may find funny, me being one of them, but I put together a montage of interviews that Charlie Manson did from prison um, but listen carefully to what he's actually saying, given the context of what we just learned about the MK Ultra connection. And let me know in the comments what you think. So let's play this clip. I tried to stop Nixon, and I stopped him dead in his tracks. I tried to stop the Vietnam War, and I did it. And I was convicted for being the father of this country. And all the things I did, I did without breaking the law. Maybe I haven't done enough. I might be ashamed of that for not doing enough. As you get a lot of mail from people who want to follow you still. Follow me? Did you have any choice? You'll all follow me. <laughs> I don't, you know, you got two. You got these people over here that want to live. You want to live? Get in line, we'll live. You don't want to live? Hurry up. <laughs> You know, the gate's open. You know, do your thing, man. Here, give them some coke. All Charlie's friends get free coke. Give them responsibility for the children that they said that I influenced. You know, you want to drop the blame on Charlie and say it's all Charlie's fault. What did you do? I do the best thing I know how. Nothing. I f I play music and I smoke a little grass now and then. Because it helps me. And I like to relax with it. That's about it. You Google Drugs, LSD, I don't consider a drug. I don't consider poverty a drug. Those are more or less religiously significant awareness, mind-expanding apparatuses that come from the intelligence of the universe. The reason that the girls liked me was, Hey now, hey now, I'm all around you, around you. Hey now, up on your heart I can sing through you. And I play and I sing and they say, hey man, you, you got, you got soul in that music. And I said, yeah, I, I play a little bit, you know, I like music. And they said, man, you're really somebody. I said, oh, I am? Oh, I just got out of jail. I don't know what somebody is. They like my music. They say, man, we want to get you over. I said, get me over for what? They said, we take you down here to Beverly Hills and we want to get you in with, because you're a star. I said, I'm a what? They said, you're a star. So they took me to the Beach Boys. Brain, I did not break the law. Jesus Christ told you that 2,000 years ago. You don't understand me. That's your trouble. Not my fault because you don't understand me. 
I don't understand you either. But I don't spend my whole life trying to put the blame over on you because my cigarette didn't light or because something didn't work right. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. I have it here. I don't need to live in this physical realm. I walk around in the physical realm, and I put on the faces, and I talk, and I play, and I, yeah, it's this big act, man. In the spiritual world is where I live. I exist in places you never even dreamed of. I don't... I'm just another guy walking down the road going, how many times I got to go to the road? God, I've got a face, and I paint for a What is it? I'm an old man. All I want to do is retire. Get on the desert and be left alone. I don't want to rob nobody. I'm hiding out from the rock. They come to me and say, hey, Charlie, hi. I said, what do you want? So I talk. I said, about what? We have problems. People look at you today, 20 years later, and they still have no idea what you're about. Tell me in a sentence who you are. <laughs> that your mother told you, who do you think I am? This is only a couple hours. Can you imagine what it would be like a couple days with me? I live a hundred years a day. Do you feel blame? Are you mad? Uh, do you feel like wolves go bob for friends? Get friends, but 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 get friends. Get 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 Music is my soul. Music is the way I express. It's my religion. It's my religion. Russell said sex is religion. Yeah, sex is a reflection. Everything's a reflection of this. When you reflect that, you reflect music. I reflect it in music. That's me. Manson is sort of a showman. Like when he tried to, as he puts it, take me to a higher level. Or when I again asked him to define his unique charm. What do you think it is about you that makes people want to be a part of whatever it is you're a part of? I'm brand new. Everything I do is always brand new. I'm on the premise of reality. I walk a real, a, a real road. I'm a real person inside. I'm not a phony. I don't put on no airs. I say what I think. You see what I'm saying? Aren't and you I, putting on an air now? Aren't you putting on, on an well, air for it, me? When you, when, you, when you look it back, see if it's an air. See if where you get it. And someone sees it and goes by and they say, hey, how you doing? I say, pretty good. How you be? So in my opinion, to make the official story believable, they wanted to shut him up, make him crazy, and totally demonize and discredit him. And what's a good way of doing that? Isolating. They isolated him the majority of his life. He was in solitary confinement. He didn't have a cellmate. He had no contact with any humanity. So 
they made him into this boogeyman character and tried to make him look stupid even though he was trying to get something out but any person that is you know people have given false confessions and stuff because they've been in a room with an interrogator for too long could you imagine that but every day of your life it would make you legit go crazy he had a lot of outbursts uh when reporters would say oh look at him look at this crazy guy but he wasn't he wasn't always crazy i don't think but i could be wrong but again these are my personal opinions so they wanted him to look crazy and when charlie manson was in front of the camera he would perform and that's he he wanted he was the boogeyman that everybody wanted so that's all i got for the charlie manson thing i hope you guys enjoyed that um but i do have one final clip and it's very interesting and i'm going to call it the Pinocchio and Epstein connection. So check this out. They they compromised people. And it's been going on forever. Yeah. they Forever, too. It's got to be going on right now still. It's 100%. Be, but It's got to be happening somewhere where you can get away with it. Well, I mean, even in the, in the Disney film, in Pinocchio, it's unbelievable, the, the pub scene in Pinocchio. I think, there a new, I think there's a new Pinocchio. That's there is. Tom Hanks is in it. Th yeah, it became in the public domain, so anybody could make a Pinocchio movie now. Oh, oh how creepy. That is creepy. So I'm when did the first Pinocchio <laughs> come out? Oh, my God. It was probably like fucking 40. Okay, look up the pub scene in Pinocchio, and you'll remember this when you saw it as a kid. It, was so, it gave you a creepy feeling in your belly. Let's see it. Pub scene in Pinocchio. He talks about bringing the boys to Pleasure Island. And then he starts whispering what happens to the boys and the fox freaks out. He's like, oh, but, but, and he goes, no, 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 no. They don't come back as boys. <laughs> Watch it. When do you think they started doing stuff like that? Dude. And you know, these guys all hopped up. They're like, oh, you know, we're, we're making it. This is it. This is it. Here we go. It's great to be a celebrity. An actor's life for me. And the dummy fell for it. And he still thinks we're his friends. <laughs> and this Stromboli pay. Plenty. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> what? That's how low I'll stoop. Now, uh, coachman. So cocky. What's your proposition? Well, how would you blokes like to make some real money? Well, hmm. and who do we have to, uh... No, no, nothing like that. You see? I'm connecting stupid little boys. Stupid little boys, you know. Hmm. The disobedient ones, what play you give them school. And you see. <laughs> and I take them to Pleasure Island. Uh, Pleasure What's your reaction? Pleasure Island? But the law? Suppose they. No. No, there's no risk. There's no risk. Come back. As boys. <laughs> 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 
Jesus Christ. What is that? It's so creepy because like what value are boys to him? It's, That's the thing. It's like they're going to kidnap these boys, but why? And they're not going to kill him. Oh, Jesus no, Christ. No, no, You want to make real money. And the line before it, like, we'll stoop to anything for this much. And that's what people don't understand. That power will bring the pure demonic devil out of you if that's who your God is. Like, she's like, you want to make a real man? We steal boys, stupid little boys. We bring them to Pleasure Island. And then you see the fox, he goes, oh, Pleasure Island? So I mean, the, must... and he goes, no, 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 they don't come back as little boys. So you gotta think, in 1940, when they're writing this, the guys that are writing this, they must have probably heard stories about children getting sex trafficked. They must have heard those stories, because we've heard those stories. Yes. We've heard those stories as adults. Yes. Where there was always stories about some weird government in Italy, was the same, where the original story was written, the donkey is a symbol of stupidity. The moral behind Pleasure mm -hmm. Island uh, is that little boys who scoff at education and moral codes set forth by their parents, preachers, and authority figures will engage in jackass behavior instead, such as fighting, vandalism, underage drinking, and often destined to grow up to become men who have no option to make a living except through back-breaking manual labor, and there are plenty of people in the world, such as the coachman, who will take advantage of that? Um, I think maybe there's a little it's, more going on there. <laughs> like your interpretation of that. That's such a shallow interpretation <laughs> of them kidnapping boys and saying they're not come, they don't come back as boys. We're just trying to help their education. And then he's evil. So like, what value would he have for the? What's the value of those boys if they're, you're not sexualizing them? Like it seems like that's a very specific possibility that's happening. Just very incredible that no one talks about that have you ever seen any of those documentaries about like government officials who uh, get busted oh yeah it's wild no, man it's, it's, there it's, must be like a certain group like a, a like a secret group of people that have been engaging in stuff like that for a long time now when i saw that i was like i have to show that for next week's history because you know it happened in 1940 and it's crazy that they were talking about this kind of stuff way back then and uh, me and Opa used to be really big Disney fans. What are your thoughts about that, Opa? Well, that was kind of creepy. I don't know. Uh, when I was a kid watching that, and I guess when you were a kid watching that, I don't think we thought about any of that. We just thought that those were evil guys trying to uh, do something bad to Pinocchio. Yeah, and if you don't mind your manners, this is what will happen. You know, you'll become a donkey. Yep. Or that's, whatever. That's what it was. Yeah, so let me know what you guys think down in the comment section. Was it creepy? Was it not? What do you think? Do you think it was a coincidence? Who knows? Anyways, you guys let me know. And uh, that's all I got for history. I hope you guys enjoyed. Now it's time for some memes. So meme me up, Jake. <laughs> Alright, so we got some funny memes for you guys. Uh, we're going to start off with a hilarious video of si someone speaking at a city council meeting regarding the topic of AI. Uh, and they present some uh, 
pretty convincing ideas. And I think this is definitely the sentiment that would sway the world to be pro-AI. What up, council? I'm here to discuss artificial intelligence. AI is going to take all of our jobs and render us useless. And I, for one, am stoked. I hate jobs. I had a job once, and everyone there talked in weird voices. AI is going to 86 all of that. But, but we'll still need money. That is why I'm asking the government to step up and make sure we're breaded. We are proposing a small payment plan, or small PP, of 10 G a month for every citizen so we can party and look hot and enjoy our free time. Now, we can't afford to just sit back and have AI bust through and not have a plan. We gotta make sure people have food and houses so we can party and rage in peace. So instruct AI to pay all of us and then you dudes can retire gracefully before you get replaced and we'll see you at the beach. The bonfires will be epic. Everybody will be hot. All right, let's get into some memes here. Check this out. Purchased a log home from Ikea. That's just what it would look like. <laughs> what did the triangle say to the circle? You're pointless. Uh, some of these uh, were submissions from Opa. Thank you, Opa. Fake people don't surprise me anymore. Loyal people do. It's such a rare breed today to find loyalty. Okay, fine. I'll mow the lawn. Especially if it looked like that. Harley lawnmower. Okay, fine. I'll go camping. <laughs> this is like a super structure. Crazy. There's no way this is actually real. It's got to be like an AI generated image. Insane. All right. How to add $1 million in value to any home in Texas. Submitted by Opa, of course, they'll know better than I as Texas residents. I guess you guys are big fans of uh, State Pride and Dr. Pepper down there. <laughs> Your phone with 1% battery life using the Face ID unlock feature. I know your face. <laughs> oh, man. I, uh, I don't think I've ever used my facial ID unlock uh I guess uh, the more modern our phones get, the more popular it becomes. Uh, I've heard if the FBI want to break into your phone, that's not a good thing to have because they'll just point it at you, unlock your phone. That's why it's better to have a passcode. A winner of a 2.04 billion Powerball jackpot announced after a technical glitch. Whoops. It's Mr. Zelensky. All right. How do farmers party? They turn up the beats. Oh, yeah. The last card they play will be the alien card, and it's all a lie. This is uh, according to Werner von Braun's assistant and some of the things he was talking about in agendas that will play out in the world. And uh, it's very possible that it's accurate. Now, of course, some big questions about what's happening down in Antarctica, right? It's too cold to fly over Antarctica, but not in space? Okay, yeah. So why has nobody ever circumnavigated the globe again all the way across Antarctica from uh, from South Africa to Argentina? 
I don't know. If there's a heaven's no and a hell yes, why isn't there a purgatory maybe? <laughs> That's silly. Uh, what? Where are you going? Don't know. Maybe Texas. They still love freedom. You can tell these are definitely uh, submitted by some Texas folks. Thanks, Opa. <laughs> uh, teacher, why are you late? Student, yesterday we ate the chicken that used to wake me up. Teacher, oh, okay, well, uh, this is what the chicken used to say. Coffee's ready, y'all up yet? <laughs> if a plant is sad, do other plants photosympathize with it? It's a good question. Very good. If you do not know what you're doing, neither does your enemy. Jozu. I bet you like that one, Jeremiah. When someone asks you to bring over some good bread, here's some Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Exodus. Some some good bread. Bible meme. Mom, leave the darn sign in the kitchen where it belongs. Life is short. Lick the bowl. <laughs> That's the wrong place to have it in the bathroom. For two fifty an hour, I will pose as a couples therapist and convince your loved ones they're wrong about everything. It's a way to make some side bucks. This is the luckiest car owner ever. The tree collapsed, and it was perfectly shaped to miss their vehicle. Although, uh, depending on if they had full you know, coverage insurance-wise, they were probably pretty disappointed. They could have gotten a whole brand new car, uh, and it looks kind of beat up as it is. But yes... Proofreading this book couldn't have been that hard. We got uh, five bananas listed, and you got to count them. One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh-oh. Little dude looks like he's about to make fishing great again. Man, that's striking similarity. Wow. Uh, when I successfully guessed my password for an account I haven't logged in for a long time. Still worthy. Yeah, I, I get that feeling sometimes. And finally, a grocery store in the early 1980s, all glass bottles, no plastic in sight. Wow. Yeah, I, I always thought that glass bottled beverages tasted better. Uh, in the Philippines where I grew up, it was glass sodas and stuff that they would sell. Always had a better flavor to them. And, uh, and like we shared last week, we all have a little bit of Barbie at heart, or in our bodies at least, from all the microplastics we consume. Uh, all right, that's all the memes for this week. Hope you guys enjoyed. Jake, thank you for another great current news and memes as always. Opa, thank you for another great Opus Corner. I hope you guys enjoyed today's history, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Never quit fighting. Let no man deceive you. Thank you for standing alongside us as we fight for justice and continue our quest for truth. Subscribe and stay tuned. If you would like to submit a story, topic, or have any other inquiries, please email submit at skibanewsnation.com. Also, you can email Jeremiah Skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com. Also, email Jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com. If you want to write us a letter, send us something, help support us, or just say hi, Please send your letter to Jeremiah Skiba, P.O. Box 560-271, The Colony, Texas, 75056. If you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, subscribe.
click that notification bell so you never miss an episode of Skiba News Nation. If you want to help support us, please consider becoming a Patreon, where you will get exclusive content, shoutouts, and much more. And you can also support our channel by getting yourself some new Skiba News Nation merch. Thank you for coming on this journey with us as we continue to stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Nation. Also, you can listen to Skiba News Nation podcast on your favorite podcast platform.